This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. It's been a busy first few weeks for the new government. The day after they were sworn in, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong took off for Tokyo for a meeting with the Quad. Prime Minister Kishida, President Biden and Prime Minister Modi, it is an honour that this is my first act as Prime Minister. Then came quick solo stops for Wong in Fiji, Samoa and Tonga. And as Australia's Foreign Minister, I commit to working with you and to listening to you. Where she continually underlined Australia's commitment to the Pacific, hoping to make up for lost time in the region. Nothing will change the fact that our future is intertwined. This diplomatic charm offensive ended this week in Indonesia, with further commitments to strengthen diplomatic ties between the two countries. This is more than symbolic. This is a friendship which is deep. And I think it is, uh, it is significant. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about what message Labor is trying to send with its focus on foreign affairs. It's Friday, the 10th of June. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabrielle. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So we're three weeks into a Labor government and we've already seen Anthony Albanese and Foreign Minister Penny Wong on many overseas trips. Why is this, Lenore? What's the message they're trying to send? I think that China's growing influence in the Asia-Pacific and the whole sort of geopolitical tug-of-war between China and the United States is the international issue for the incoming government. And that's borne out by their actions. Anthony Albanese really had to go on that first trip to the Quad, that is the meeting with the leaders of the US, Japan, India and Australia. Penny Wong made two visits to the Pacific and then Albanese and Penny Wong travelled together to Indonesia. All of this is to try to use the newness of the government, the establishment of relations to exert as much influence as Australia can in this most critical diplomatic and geopolitical issue facing Australia. I think, you know, President Biden said he wouldn't let China win the 21st century, uh, but China has been working really steadily to increase its economic and diplomatic ties. They're trading much more with the Asia-Pacific. They're providing much more aid and funding, including through the pandemic. They're being much more overt, much more muscular, much more aggressive in seeking to exert influence. And I think the US sort of has lost a bit of ground during the Trump years, certainly, and hasn't really made it up during the Biden years. And so the Quad, this sort of abiding relationship with democracies in the region, is the most important grouping for US and Australia. But Australia's role is also to build these relationships in this region. And I think the new government saw an urgent need to get into that space and could use their newness to refresh things. And I think in particular, Penny Wong has been really impressive in how quickly and adeptly she's jumped into this role, which she, you know, held for nine years in opposition and has, you know, started quite quickly to do things in that, in the region. Mm. And there was a particularly specific reason to be quickly off the mark this time, wasn't there? Because uh, Mm. China was proposing a broad-ranging security and economic pact with 10 Pacific nations. Exactly. And she wanted to talk to them before that was 
decided on whether or not her intervention was decisive. We don't know really, but she certainly wanted to do everything she could to put Australia's viewpoint about that before they made that decision, and yeah. which they eventually decided not to not to sign up to. Um, so I guess you could count that as a win, a very quick win, uh, whether whether or not her intervention was the was the key thing or not. And it was sort of like um, Penny Wong and the Chinese foreign minister were sort of both in the region for very long periods of time and in competing visits around the region, which I thought was really interesting. Is this a really different approach from Labor to what the coalition's approach was? You know, those pressures did exist already, but there didn't seem to be so much of a focus on foreign affairs. I don't think there's a fundamental shift in terms of Australia's attitude to the alliances, nor a fundamental shift in its attitude towards the Pacific. There was less diplomatic trips by foreign ministers to the Pacific, but I guess we also have been through two and a half years of pandemic where a lot of those countries were impossible to visit or had their borders shut. I think that Labor has used its different policy on global heating to its advantage. That was certainly a big sticking point in relations with the Pacific. And I guess towards the end of its term, the former government, I think you could make the case the former government took its eye off the ball a bit with the Pacific. So even though there's been no deliberate or decisive shift in attitude, there's an energy and a, and a determination from the new government that had probably diminished a bit in the dying days of the coalition government. And there's definitely been a shift in rhetoric, hasn't there? Mm. Um, as well, both on China and on the Pacific. So obviously Penny Wong and Albanese are talking about climate a lot more, which the uh, Morrison government was reluctant to do, but also in relation to China. Wong's talked even before coming to office about how some of the coalition's rhetoric on, you know, sort of very aggressive chest-beating rhetoric on China, how we would stand by Taiwan if there was a war, and, and these kind of comments from Peter Dutton were a mistake. And so without changing the... A sort of assertiveness on China's interests in the region. They're certainly toning down the rhetoric in that respect. But the climate point is the, the one key point of difference where this is the thing that the Pacific countries have been going on about for so many years, that this is their main security concern. It's their main policy concern, full stop. And, you know, they were not getting the response they wanted from Australia on that, not getting the signals they wanted that we were taking it seriously enough. And that certainly is one thing that has changed substantively. Mm. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I've been to many, many, many of those international climate conferences over the years where you could sort of see, almost see the bewilderment by the Pacific representatives at the lack of almost empathy or comprehension of an ally like Australia to the existential threat that global heating posed for them. It's quite complicated though, right? Because, you know, China sort of made these overtures of rapprochement to the new government. They said they wanted to be friends in effect. And, you know, Anthony Albanese was quite clear in response to that. China needed to withdraw the 14 demands it issued in 2020. You know, those weird list of demands that included bizarre things like, you know, the media needed to stop attacking China and we had to relax our foreign investment rules. And he also said, you know, China needs to lift um, trade sanctions on Australian exports. So he wasn't, while there's a, a re-engagement and a change in rhetoric, there's really not a lot of give in the underlining attitude, I don't think. Outside of global heating, which we know is their number one priority, what are the main issues that Australia will have to contend with? Well, I think it's really just this 
ongoing persistent dogged efforts by China to include the Pacific in its sphere of influence. And I think really the attitude in the Pacific countries is a bit like they don't see themselves as having to take sides. They like the fact that there are lots of big powers offering help and assistance that suits them and they want, you know, a peaceful and stable region. China has certainly made ground in the Pacific and I think Penny Wong was trying to sort of very quickly intervene to head that off. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, as you said, did not succeed in getting that very broad security agreement that he was seeking across the Pacific. But he did get make a lot of progress with individual countries. You know, he signed the controversial security deal with the Solomon Islands during the election campaign, which certainly concerned Australia and the US quite a lot. You know, he was in Timor, you know, right on Australia's doorstep. You know, the new president, Jose Ramos Horta, rejected the idea of a security pact as well, but is in quite quite close dialogue with China about all sorts of other things like air services and healthcare and digitisation of TV and radio. So there's lots of inroads that China's making in its relationship with Timor as well. And I think the thing that the government is really aware of is that China is just going to keep pressing ahead with all of this. And while they might have underestimated the store that the Pacific put on collective decision-making and pushed a bit too hard too quickly for that big Pacific-wide pact, they are increasing their relationship with the individual Pacific countries slowly and steadily, and that's going to be an ongoing issue for Australia. Mike, what has Penny Wong said that Australia can offer to counteract that uh, Chinese influence? It's a bit early for very specific initiatives, but she has talked about how Australia needs to listen to the Pacific countries more intently before you know going in and telling them how we think they should react to China, that we respect their autonomy and so on, which, you know, the previous government also did, but she's sort of making all the right noises about how it's up to the Pacific countries themselves, how they want to respond to China. So these kind of soft power things and making the right noises in the first instance and trying to get the relationship off on the right foot is where is that so far. But when it comes to specifics, you know, aid and development money, where we're going to spend it and how, that is all kind of still remains to be seen. There's also one specific thing in relation to global heating, which is seeking to host the annual UN Climate Conference in conjunction with the Pacific in 2024, which if that came off would be a very concrete and well-received thing, I think. Most Australian politicians start out on their foreign visits to Indonesia and they seem to have make really exciting announcements and predictions about the relationship and then it kind of seems to go quiet. Look, I think it's really complicated. You know, every Prime Minister I have covered says they want to improve relations with Indonesia and almost every Prime Minister makes it either their first or second overseas trip. John Howard, Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott all did their first trip to Indonesia. Remember Tony Abbott said his foreign policy would be more Jakarta than Geneva. I mean, that might have had as much to do with his distaste for multilateral organisations in Geneva as it did his desire to improve things with Indonesia. But in any event, they all say they want to have better relations with Indonesia. Kevin Rudd, it was an enormous priority for him. And I think all of the Prime Ministers do mean it. And yet, 
Our ties with Indonesia aren't what they should be. Our trade is tiny. I read a piece this week that said that there's only 250 Australian companies with a presence in Indonesia compared to like 3,000 in China. We don't teach Bahasa much in schools and universities. Our cultural and people-to-people ties are not what they should be given the proximity of Indonesia and, you know, and its potential as a strategic partner and an economic partner. So I think this trip by Anthony Albanese really set up the symbolic ties. You know, he developed a, a good relationship, it would seem, with Jakawi. But I think we have to understand that trading with Indonesia is complicated for a number of reasons. And I remember one reason that came up a lot when I was on a delegation to Indonesia a few years back was the complication of dealing with regional governments who have a lot of power in terms of approvals and and, and in, in lots of ways. And even if there's a lot of will to make an investment work or make a trading relationship work at the national government, it can often come unstuck at the regional level. I mean, that was just one thing. But I think it's like a deeper conversation that we need to have to understand why it is that despite really genuine goodwill and intention by successive prime ministers, we haven't really done with this relationship what we what we want to. Hmm. It's amazing how that Indonesia doesn't loom larger in the Australian consciousness, given how what a huge country it is and how close it is geographically. But I guess there are also, you know, over time, there have been a lot of really difficult issues that hmm. have got in the way of developing closer, you know, relations with successive governments. There have been terrorist incidents, you know, there's the, the Bali bombings, there have been the executions of the Bar- two members of the Bali Nine, you know, there have been the issue of asylum boats leaving Indonesia, all kinds of really thorny. There was our story about revelations of spying against Yudhoyono. <laughs> there was the spying, yes, I'm very familiar with Lenora, no. Yeah, all kinds of really thorny top-level issues that get in the way of that relationship. And I think the this government possibly understands better than certainly the previous government that the whole issue of US-China rivalry looks different through Indonesian eyes or through Southeast Asian eyes in that I think what Jakarta wants above all else is autonomy and a peaceful Southeast Asian region without conflict between superpowers. So they want to sort of protect peace and security and be autonomous. They don't see themselves as needing or wanting to take sides. And I sometimes think Australian policymakers don't quite understand well enough the different way that Jakarta looks at that issue from Australia. Is there any sense of how this kind of diplomatic charm offensive is going down in the region? Um, I think a quick perusal of the Indonesian press, just as a straw poll, would suggest quite well. You know, the symbolic visit to Sulawesi uh, in terms of the trading relationship, what went down well, the Albanese and Jakawi riding bikes together. The new industry minister, Ed Husik, was also on that visit. He is a Muslim member of parliament, and I think that also goes down well in Indonesia. I think there's a lot of sort of symbolic things that are being well received. I think there's a general perception that Labor governments have been better to work with in the region than coalition governments, whether that's fair or not. So I think early days, I think it's going quite well. But, you know, as we've discussed, there's a lot to do to actually make good on the promise. And, you know, things can go wrong in this relationship and have done quite regularly. 
Next, demonic bananas and decreasing plastics. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Mike, what's stuck in your brain this week? So my story this week is a good news story, uh, at least a minor good news story. Don't undercut it before you even tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Which is CSIRO researchers have reported that there has been a 30% reduction in plastic pollution on Australia's coastline. That is obviously not uh, you know, a comprehensive reduction, but they measured 183 sites in six states, all six states, and found a significant reduction. You know, these tentative findings at least showed that some measures that we're taking can have an actual impact on the amount of rubbish out there, uh, which is obviously so devastating to wildlife. Who knew? (laughs) Lenore, what can't you get out of your head? Okay, a slightly confusing story about a banana. (laughs) So the comedian John Oliver has offered to buy the demonic banana statue that was causing a lot of controversy in Melbourne. So if we move back a few months in this story, <laughs> the banana was statue was erected in the very trendy inner Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy, apparently to slow traffic. I don't know if it's a good idea to slow traffic because they're looking <laughs> at a demonic banana. But anyway, putting that to one side, the banana went up. There was a public backlash against the banana. Someone tried to saw the banana's head off. Somehow this came to the attention of John Oliver, possibly through a story in Guardian Australia because some of the pictures used were taken by our own news producer and um, desk editor Sam Strutt who lives near the demonic banana. Demonic banana has been taken down and replaced by a flower pot, (laughs) but John Oliver offered to buy the demonic banana statue for 10 bucks and exchange it for the similarly sized alligator statue with its middle finger up, which he has developed as part of a proposal to replace all of the Confederacy statues in Florida with an alligator with its finger up. That's as much as I know. It's kind of confusing but amazing that John Oliver is interested in the demonic banana, but you may may know more, Gabs, because you are a demonic banana John Oliver (laughs) expert, I believe. And a Don Oliver uh, fan and a banana, a demonic banana fan as it happens. But I love all the elements of this story. Uh, I was just watching it on Monday night with my partner and I was like, oh, the banana, that's outside Sam's window. <laughs> and then and then the story just kept getting better and better because there are so many, like, interesting Australian elements to it. So in addition to the $10 for the statue, he said he would donate $10,000 to a local food bank and $10,000 to the John Oliver Chlamydia Award for koalas at Australia Zoo, which Russell Crowe named and donated the money to establish after John Oliver bought several items, including some kind of weird jock strap, in Russell Crowe's divorce auctions. I think we're confusing people now, Gabs. I think <laughs> also, we should point out that the creator of the demonic, so-called demonic banana, which is actually called Fallen Fruit, the artwork, Adam Stone, doesn't think it's demonic at all and is it's about, well, I mean, maybe this is obvious from <laughs> looking at it or maybe it's not, but he wanted people to perhaps consider the conceptual meaning of the work as well, which was that, when he made it, he was thinking about hubris in Western society and our obsession with unsustainable excess and how this affects the environment. So, uh, you know, it's not 
We're, now we're just making now we're just making fun of it, which is maybe harsh. Feels like the story's moved a long way from there. It has. Yeah. <laughs> the story's moved a long way from that very fine original intent. Well, I love the banana. I hope it comes back. The Yarra Council has said they will not sell it to John Oliver, unfortunately. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, if you liked this show, please leave us a review. We'd love it and it really helps other people find us. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday and we'll see you then. <laughs>